And take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians today as we look again in chapter 4, looking again at verses 1 through 8, just as we did last week. You'll notice that in our bulletin, uh, if you were not here with us today, you are going to hear part 2, and I encourage you to go back and listen to part 1, which I hope is on our website, uh, because what we did in uh, our study last week was to look at this passage and to begin to lay some foundational understandings that we need as, as Christians, uh, to understand what it is not just that our sexuality is for, as Paul deals uh, with that topic, but also what we are for, you know, why we're here and why God has made us and what he's doing with his people in every aspect of our lives, not just that small slice of our lives that we call our sexuality. And what we found is that God has made us to please him. He saves us. To please him. He leads us by his spirit so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. We were uh, dealing with that last week, and today we're going to be getting, Lord willing, a little bit more specific with some of the commands uh, and the warnings that Paul gives us in this passage about sexual sin. And we're also going to get a bit more specific about uh, how the Lord works in us through his Holy Spirit to lead us into holiness. And so 1 Thessalonians Today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, you can find that on page 987 of our ESVs if you haven't found it already. Uh, 1 Thessalonians today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Before we read this word, please join me again as we seek the Lord's blessing on our study. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, as we come to your word, we find that it speaks to us of every area of our lives. Every need that we have, every temptation that we face, you have told us about it. You've told us what to think about these sins, and you've told us about your work to save us from them and out of them and away from them. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give also your Holy Spirit to us. Help us, O Lord, to understand what it is that you have for your people. Help us to believe in the way that you lead us. Help us not to listen. Uh, to the lies of the world, but instead to listen to the truth of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he bless our study of it uh, together today. Well, Lee uh, is a woman whose story I found on a a book flap blurb. A 
book about how to manage your affair if you choose to have one, how to uh, go about having an extramarital relationship in a way that uh, can sort of keep it contained and where it ought to be so that it doesn't leach out into the other areas of your life and cause havoc. And Lee is a woman who's uh, blurb in the beginning spoke of uh, sort of testimonial as to how much this book meant to her. Lee had been married for 15 years. She and her husband have one child, and she writes this. She says, I am having an affair. I never thought I would or even could, but here I am in a four-year-long affair with a man 12 years my senior. It started out innocently enough. Just friends. Our children are the same age. We talked a lot about them. Both our marriages were unhappy at the time. We talked about that. One thing led to another. Here we are. It's not a matter of love, she continues, although we are extremely fond of one another. It's not a matter of not loving our spouses. I have a husband whom I greatly admire. But all marriages change. Sometimes you can't make them better. She says, our spouses don't know about us, and they never will. We agreed to that years ago. There are boundaries we would never cross. We would never interfere with or hurt each other's lives. We have the best of all worlds. Happy home lives and wonderful little interludes with each other. And then she concludes, we have not... And we will not hurt anyone. Well, that's the way the lie is told, isn't it? The lie that says that what the Bible calls sexual sin is it's really rather harmless, isn't it? In the case of adultery, so long as nobody finds out, no feelings need to be hurt. It's not the sort of thing that needs to break up a family. It's not the sort of thing that anybody needs to judge at all. It's not even an indication that you no longer respect the person you're already married to. It's really rather harmless. Then again, if, if marriage isn't in the picture, there's even less to worry about. Because then the only rules for engagement are uh, consent on the one hand and enjoyment on the other. And between those two boundaries, absolutely anything and absolutely everything goes that you might want to try. Because after all, sexual sin is really rather harmless. Well, as Christians, one of our greatest needs is the discipline of guarding our hearts against the lies that sound exactly like that. The lies that tell us that our sin isn't that sinful. The lies that tell us that our desires are really quite natural. The lies that tell us that what we choose to do in private isn't going to hurt anyone. Today in 1 Thessalonians, as we look again at this passage, we're going to hear Paul answering some of those lies and countering them with the power of the Word of God. Telling us that it's the Lord who has made us. It's He who has given us our sexuality. It is He who can lead us out of what is harmful and into what is holy. Two main points to our study today, two things that I want you to see. 
And the first has to do with recognizing the sinfulness of sexual immorality. The sinfulness of sexual immorality. Paul writes in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, to which the world says, why should I? What's so bad about a little bit of fun? Why should I do what God wants me to do? Last week, as I mentioned, we we answered that question from a a God-focused point of view, a, a theological answer, which goes something like, God created us for himself. He made us to glorify and to please him. And so the theological answer to why abstain from sexual immorality is because it pleases the Lord. That's what we've been made for. It's why we exist. But you know how our hearts work. We want to know the practical side of things as well. We want to know where these things touch us and and what's required of us. and, And we want to know what's in it for us. God's word spells that out for us as well. Part of the focus in this passage is really on the exceeding sinfulness of sexual immorality. It shows up in this passage. You notice uh, that there is this overarching command. God's will for you is sanctification, and then it's spelled out in three imperatives. That you abstain. That you control. That you not sin and wrong your brother. And that's one way to look at this passage, but I want to look at the sin that Paul is, is pulling out in three separate levels, three other ways of seeing them. The first is we need to understand that sexual sin really is a sin against our bodies. Verses 4 and 5, he says, God's will is your sanctification. And then he defines it more specifically as knowing how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice the personal application. He says that sexual purity isn't just a matter of holiness. That's a Godward sort of thing. But sexual purity is a matter of honor. Living a sexually self-controlled life is an honorable thing. It's a respectable thing. We might say that it's a matter of decency. That almost sounds like a man-centered approach. In fact, it would fit very well in Paul's culture, the culture of the Roman world of the day, because you may be aware that the Roman world of the first century was a shame and honor culture. What was virtuous was what was considered honorable. What was not virtuous was anything that was considered shameful. And Everett Ferguson says that the standard for these categories really came down to public opinion. If something advances your reputation in the eyes of other people, that's an honorable thing. But if it smears that reputation with shame, that's the sort of thing you want to avoid. Well, that presents a problem for us, doesn't it? Because what do you do when society changes? What are you to think about what is honorable and what is shameful when what used to be shameful is no longer considered something that should make us blush? That's where we find ourselves right now. That's where our culture is. Ideas like shame and honor have been swallowed up, devoured by the all-consuming desire for things like inclusivity, self-expression, sexual diversity, 
we're being told, is an honorable thing. We're being told that not only should we not be ashamed of our sexual sin, but rather it's the sort of thing that we should be absolutely, positively proud about. I'm not just talking about the sins of homosexuality, for which we have an entire month of pride and, and parades for pride. It's not just that. It's getting pushed in all sorts of ways and in increasingly, increasingly younger years. Our children and our teenagers are being told that what is good for them, what is honorable, we might say, is for them to be sexually active. That's a healthy thing, we're told. And so you take your teenagers to the pediatrician, and they ask the parent to step out of the room, and they begin to ask all sorts of questions. Are you engaging in this? Is that good for you? Is it a good thing to be pursuing? Our children are being told that to be fully human, they must, quote, explore their sexuality. As though it was some sort of wonderland, just, just waiting to be found out. That's what our society considers honorable. And so what are we to think about what Paul means here when he talks about honorable? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, go along with what society thinks is good and what society thinks is shameful? No. Paul says we ought to control our bodies in holiness and honor. And he's not talking about what fits our cultural moment. He's talking about what the Lord himself says is an honorable use of our bodies. Here's how he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is Paul's basic approach to sexual sin. That sexual sin is self-harm. That it is essentially self-destructive. It is using our bodies in a way that is harmful to them. Why? Well, because God has made us with dignity. He's made us honorable. Not with a, a sort of relative dignity that rises and falls with the tides of the culture. Not a sort of functional dignity that we take only out of what our bodies are capable of. God has created humanity with inherent dignity. With an objective value and meaning. He gave us bodies, yes, but he gave us minds as well. He gave us hearts. He linked them to eternal souls. He gave us something more than animalistic instincts. The Lord created the body honorable because he created us as the only creatures made in the image of God with inherent dignity and value. And when we use our bodies for nothing more than the pursuit of those animal urges, we dishonor the bodies the Lord has created. Look, if you press hard enough into the unbelieving secular world, you can begin to find even this warning against the danger of sexual sin. You have to look pretty hard, but it's there. You can find the books. You can find the articles warning you about the way that pornography, quote, hijacks your neural pathways, the way that rewires your brain. You can find the warnings against things like diseases, and emotional turmoil, and what the world calls unplanned pregnancies. And all of that is true, but all of it is secondary at best. 
The self-harm that comes with engaging in sexual sin does not begin with infections or dopamines or babies nobody was, was ready for. The danger of sexual sin begins with heaping shame on bodies that God created honorable. There is a standard of honor and shame that does not shift depending on what the world thinks about it. It comes down to how God has made us, what he's made us for. So you might say that what we really need is a bit of godly self-respect. What we need is to treat our bodies with the honor that God gave them because sexual sin is a sin against our bodies. Sexual sin is also a sin against our brothers. That's the second level that we need to understand this passage. That's the focus of verse 6. God's will is your sanctification, namely, verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, we don't know for sure what was happening in Thessalonica, what might not be happening in Thessalonica. And in fact, Paul said earlier that they were already walking in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. So let's not import our ideas about some scandal into the church. We don't know what was happening, but we do know that Paul is issuing a warning against adultery in the Christian community. The command here comes down to two negative imperatives. Do not transgress, he says, and do not wrong one another. Transgress is a word that has to do with boundaries. It talks about going beyond what is allowed, jumping over fences, if you will, into territory that doesn't belong to you. And this word wrong really means something more like to cheat or to defraud. It has to do with taking what is not yours, but normally through lies and through deception. All of it points to the fact that engaging in sexual sin does more than just damage our own dignity. It also harms the people who are included in our sin. It also harms the people who are connected to the people who are included in our sin. And when we engage in sin like that, we never get to draw the line and say, well, this is where it will stop. We're not the ones in control of how far that harm goes, even though we might like to tell ourselves, oh, here's where it's going to stay. Now, there's a sense in which what Paul is saying here is that adultery especially is sexual theft. It's an attempt to take for yourself the the intimacy or, or even the body of a person who does not belong to you, who is not yours. So the adulterer violates laws of fidelity. The adulterer violates marriage vows and takes for themselves the intimacy that should be someone else's. Don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. This isn't some archaic view of marriage as a husband being able to control or own his wife. That's not the biblical view of marriage. It's not that of ownership of a husband owning a wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So it moves in both directions. The biblical view of marriage is not that of ownership, but of a one-flesh relationship. There is a mutual belonging between husband and wife, but it is a mutual belonging that is given only to that relationship. And so adultery transgresses that boundary. 
it cheats another husband or another wife out of the intimacy and out of the, the, the other person, the spouse, that is, in a sense, rightfully theirs. It runs deeper than that, though. And that's because sex is never merely physical. It also cultivates an emotional bond, the sort of thing that every married couple ought to be thankful for. It's a good thing. It's part of the way that God has created sex good, and we have distorted it. And that's why people engaged in an extramarital affair always end up giving emotional capital, relational capital, to a person who shouldn't receive it. It's defrauding of those uh, things that rightly belong to someone else. It's why adultery so often gets bound up in, in hopes for a future, in discontentment with the present. It's why adultery consumes resources like time and energy and planning and money. It's why adultery almost always is accompanied by lies and deception and trying to manage the situation in the hopes that it will stay contained, but it never stays contained. Not completely, not totally. Sexual sin is like a pebble in a pond. It always creates ripples that extend outward in all directions, even when we imagine that nobody else will know, even when we imagine that what is private will remain private. Sexual sin is so personal and it's so powerful that it never stays where we put it. And that means that sexual immorality that involves another person always involves sin against that other person. Whether that sin is, uh, is adultery or fornication doesn't really matter in this equation. Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual sin doesn't really matter. Whether it fits the world's definition of enjoyable and consensual, sexual sin with someone else always involves sexual sin against someone else. That's because it is impossible to be partners together in wickedness without also being partners together in guilt. It is impossible to treat someone else's body without the dignity for which God created it, without leaving them harmed in the process. How much worse when the person that the adulterer sins with is also a believer in Christ. You need to know, of course, that this is the sort of sin that Christians can fall into. Right? None of this where we draw a line and say, well, well, good Christians can do this, but a good Christian would never do that. No, 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 no. We shouldn't be surprised when these things show up in the church to some degree. Christians can get angry, and Christians can commit tax fraud, and Christians can commit murder, and Christians can commit adultery. It's the sort of thing that believers may fall into, and it might show up in the church, but how shameful and how harmful for a believer who not only grieves the Holy Spirit by themselves, but also joins in iniquity with another child of God. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's a bodily sin. It's a spiritual sin. It's a degrading and shameful sin. And Paul wants us to understand just how harmful sexual sin really is. It's a sin against our bodies. It's a sin against our brothers. Most importantly, it's a sin against our Lord. The second half there of uh, verse 6, Paul reminds the church, he says, The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
that title, Avenger, doesn't, doesn't show up very often in the New Testament. It showed up today in our reading in Jeremiah, if you were here for Sunday school, where the Lord lists the sins of his people and then asks, shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? The Avenger doesn't show up very much in the New Testament. It does show up in Romans chapter 13. There where Paul is talking about the civil magistrate, the worldly authorities that God has put in place in the world that he has created, the world that he himself governs, and yet he puts civil magistrates in these places, and he tells us that the civil magistrate, the governing authorities, do not bear the sword in vain. Why? For he is the servant of God, an avenger, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That means that this term carries with it a legal meaning. It relates to the execution of God's justice, the application of God's righteous judgments against those who ignore the boundaries and the borders that he's placed on our human sexuality. Now, as we work that out and what that means, we have a few ways of understanding how this could be applied. For one, it could be that that he's talking here about God's judgments with a lowercase j. We could put it that way, right? The, the, the sort of normal corrective that comes about in the course of, of our sin and God's discipline and his, his fatherly shepherding of his children. The Lord is a, a loving father to his children, isn't he? And like a loving father, he's, he's willing to use just the right pressure and just the right places to steer us away from the sins in which we would normally ruin ourselves if left to our own devices. The Lord is shepherding us, and especially because sexual sin is so uniquely captivating. Especially because it is so personally harmful, the Lord sometimes uses what feels like extreme measures to pull us back from the brink. So sometimes God's discipline comes in the form of of a warning shot, almost, we could call it. A wake-up call, just when we need it. A brother or sister in Christ who calls you out of nowhere when you're about to engage in a sin you know you shouldn't engage in, and they say, how have you been? And you try to play it off. You say, oh, everything's fine. I'm good. It's okay. Sometimes God's discipline, his judgment, lowercase j, comes that way. But sometimes when we ignore those early warnings, the Lord's mercy still pursues us, even after the sin has been committed. So how does the Lord bring this into effect. Well, sometimes he allows the browser history to be discovered. Sometimes he allows the affair to be, to be known. Sometimes he allows us to lose that relationship. Sometimes he allows us to lose that family. Sometimes he allows us to lose the life that we knew before the sin began. Sometimes he pulls back the veil on the lies that we believed, and he lets us see just how harmful our sexual sin really is. And if he does that for you, dear believer, whether he does it in big ways or small ways, you ought to rejoice in what he's doing. Even in the pain and the sorrow of your sin and of your loss, you ought to rejoice if the Lord's grace pursues you into repentance. You ought to rejoice if he does not turn you over to the hardening of your heart. Because the other way that we can understand this passage, I think really the the better way to understand this warning, 
has to do with the judgment with a capital J. The judgment that's coming upon the unrepentant when Christ Jesus returns in power and in glory. Paul talks about the Lord as an avenger in all these things. And when Christ returns on the day of judgment to gather his church to himself, he's also going to appear as the judge to pour out the wrath of God on those who have rejected him. Verse 8 tells us that's exactly what happens when we refuse God's sexual standards for our lives. Verse 8, he says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A scholar by the name of Michael Martin points out that this word disregards, what does it mean? Well, it it implies, he says, a settled attitude. Not just a single incidence of disobedience. And that's what we do when we persist in sexual sin that the Lord has prohibited. We settle in to an attitude of disobedience. We choose to believe that God's word is not to be trusted that his standard is not to be followed. We disregard what the Lord has said. We reject him and we reject his standards for our lives. In short, we declare by our actions that we never really belong to the Lord at all in the first place. And when Christ returns in judgment, those who persistently and unrepentantly reject God's standards for sex will themselves be rejected. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 5 and verse 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience. And so the woman at the beginning of our sermon today says that her adultery hasn't harmed anyone. Nobody is hurt because of it. The world says that our sexual sin is really pretty harmless when it comes right down to it. And the devil would have us believe that nobody's going to find out and it's not going to cost us anything to have that pleasure that we think we deserve. But God's word tells us something very different. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Sexual immorality is a sin against our bodies. It is a sin against our brothers. It is a sin against the Lord. And left unchecked and left unrepentant of, it is a sin like every other sin. One that will harm us not only in this life, but also for eternity in the life to come. Dear Christian, this is not what the Lord has called you to. This is not what he has in store for you. And so now we come to our second, and I promise, much shorter point. The second point of our study, that after God's word confronts us with the sinfulness of sexual immorality, he also comforts us with his power for a holy life. Our second point is God's power for a holy life. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. If you're reading a different English translation today, you might miss the very important change in preposition that happens in that short little verse. 
It's there, just this little detail. It points out that this life of holiness begins not when we have gotten our act together, but it begins as soon as the Lord gives us this gift of salvation. God has not called us for impurity, Paul says. That is, he's talking again about God's goal, his purpose. When he called us to himself, it was not to leave us in the ways and the desires of our flesh. The Lord never intended to make believers out of unbelievers so that we could carry on in our self-destructive sins. Rather, the opposite is true. God has created us for purity. God has called us in order to make us clean. He's called us in order to wash us from the defilement and the degrading passions of our flesh. God has called us for purity, and that's how we expect Paul to end the sentence, but that's not what he says. He says, God has not called us for impurity, but rather in holiness. That is a pregnant phrase in Paul's epistles. When God does something in something else. Does it remind you of the way that he calls us to himself in Christ Jesus? Does it remind you of the way that he lavishes his love upon us in him and blesses us in him in the heavenly places? Does it remind you of the way that he calls us out of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? When Paul talks about God calling his children in holiness, he's describing how this holiness becomes ours. It is by God calling us. Not first and foremost by us making it true. That comes later as the Holy Spirit works in God's saved and redeemed people. But for now, what we're talking about is what theologians like to refer to as our positional holiness. Our positional sanctification. Before the Lord calls a sinner to himself, that man or that woman stands before the Lord in a position of unrighteousness. It is our status before God. It is our standing before him. It is our position in our sin and apart from Christ. But when he converts us, he transfers us into his holiness. He gives us fellowship with his own righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the logic of this verse, verse 7, works in reverse. It is because God has called us in holiness that he calls us for purity. The latter gives rise to the former. Listen to the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 2, he's beginning his letter. He's laying the foundations of who they are in the Lord. And he writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? He's writing to people who have been sanctified and are called to be sanctified. He's writing to people who are called to be holy because they already are holy because of their positional sanctification in the Lord Jesus Christ. The dynamic of working out our salvation and sanctification in the New Testament is not do good so that you can be good, but rather you are good, so do good. God has called you in holiness. That means he's called you for purity. How does this work out in our lives? Well, it works out first in being placed into Christ Jesus in our salvation. The gift of God for a holy calling to make us his own, to draw us to himself. And then it gets worked out little by little. 
and daily habits of, of daily practical sanctification. And for that, the Lord has given his people a different power. Not just the power of a holy calling, but also the power of the Holy Spirit. We began to explore this last verse last week. This glorious recognition that we are not alone in the pursuit of holiness God has called us to. It comes here all the way at the end of, of, God's, of Paul's commands and his encouragements. Paul told us to abstain. He told us to be self-controlled. He warned us not to wrong one another in the strongest possible language. And as we hear all of those things piled up, just when it begins to feel like God's sexual standards are unreachable and unattainable, he tucks in this powerful little promise at the end. He says, God gives his Holy Spirit to you. God gives you his Holy Spirit. I wonder if you've ever asked the question, why? Why does God give his Holy Spirit to his children? Why is it that the Lord Almighty gives his Holy Spirit? Why does he descend? Why does he condescend to weak and sinful humans awash in a world of sexual temptation like you and me? Why does he give his Holy Spirit? There are debates, of course. Among good Bible-believing Christians, we have disagreements in-house about what exactly God is doing. So some Christians answer that God gives his Holy Spirit for, for special gifts, for special revelations. Other Christians will say that it's about the relational aspect of our communion and our intimacy with the Father. Then there are the Presbyterians like us who insist that the gift of the Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation itself that we should have faith and repentance that we can't produce in our own hearts. And perhaps we can deal with those debates at another time. But what we all agree on, what all true Christians confess together with one voice, is that the Lord Jesus has given his Holy Spirit to his children to make them more like him. God gives his Holy Spirit to make his people more holy. That's what the Holy Spirit does quickens our souls. He enlightens our minds. He gives us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when that's over, he's not done with us. He continues leading us. He continues calling us further and further into holiness, further into sanctification by the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. God gives his Holy Spirit to make his people holy. He gives his Holy Spirit to produce in us that which we cannot produce in ourselves or by ourselves. God gives his Holy Spirit to transform us. And that was always the promise. It was always the plan. Ezekiel, about 600 years before the day of Pentecost, before the sending of the Holy Spirit to the New Testament church, he wrote this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules." Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, holiness means being near God, like God, given to God, and pleasing God. And he says, holiness like that is a product of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from the believer alone. 
It comes from the, the transformative work that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of those who are walking with him. This is why the Lord has given his Holy Spirit to you, dear Christian. Not for new gifts or new revelations that no other Christian has ever had before. The Lord gives his Holy Spirit to give you holiness. So that you will have all you need to walk in purity. So that by the renewing and the transforming power of God's Spirit, you can keep yourself unstained from the world. It's all pointing us in the direction of that benediction that we know so well at the end of this letter. And it seems to me a good place to end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the purifying work of your Holy Spirit. The washing and regeneration that you have worked in the hearts of all those who trust you. Cleansing us from every sin and stain from every guilt of iniquity. Thank you for gathering your people to yourself in faith and repentance. Thank you for leading us in daily repentance and habits of sanctification. Thank you that it all comes from you and it all returns to you in praise. Lord, we confess that we are too weak for these things that you call us to. But in your strength, O oh Lord, we pray that we would find the strength for the purity that pleases you. Help us to walk in a way that brings honor to your name, in the way that you have made us, in the calling for which you've called us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.